Well, let me start by just saying uh, what a delight it is to get to be back at James North, uh, to get to be with Pastor Dwayne and really the whole team. Uh, have fond affection for your church, for the ministry that you have in the community and well beyond. And uh, on a personal level, I've gotten to know a number of your staff and pastors, either as students or colleagues. So it's a real delight to get to be here. This place is filled with life every time I come, and I love to see that. So thank you. Thanks for the invite, Dwayne, and thanks for letting me be part of it today. So have you noticed that it seems that just about everybody has a strong opinion on just about everything? Kind of notice that going around? I mean, it's it's like there's a lot of people that are very comfortable airing their viewpoints, even arguing for their viewpoints, often doing it in a pretty fierce way. Could be on uh, matters of government policy, could be global warming, it could be gender identity. The marketplace of ideas is not just crowded in our day, it's contentious in our day. And the deal is, it's not just a problem out there in the wider culture, is it? It's also in here, where we live. There are many of us who, uh, who all claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus who still have viewpoints on things that are radically different. And there are spiritual leaders, pastors, writers, bloggers, who all claim to be speaking for God, and yet they're not all saying the same thing. Sometimes they're saying things that are diametrically opposed, and yet they're saying this is what God wants. And the result of all that has been that there's a lot of people that are pretty confused. Like, who do you listen to? Who do you trust? Who's telling you the truth? Who's right? Who's wrong? When people are all pointing in different directions, how do you know which way is true north? Now, this confusion that's, that's really widespread is a big problem, but it's not a new problem. It's been around for a long, long, long time. In fact, 2,500 years ago, it was a big problem. 2,500 years ago, there was all kinds of opinions being floated, and people were confused about what to think and which way to go. We know that from the storyline that emerges from the ancient book of Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah's time, there were spiritual leaders who were telling people, this is what God wants. But those spiritual leaders weren't all saying the same things. And the people were confused. Now, God wasn't happy with that. He wasn't happy with all the confusion, so he took steps to clear it up. Not just for Jeremiah's time, but for all time. Today, we're going to listen in on what God said back then, 2,500 years ago, to people who were being told a variety of different things and were confused. We're going to listen to what God said then because it's still what God says now. And it can help us. It can help you. It can help me. It can help you when you have to evaluate various viewpoints that come your way. It can help you cut through the clutter and the noise and find your way to true north to know what God is actually saying. 
I have a sense that I'm around people today that actually care about that. They want to know, what, what is God saying? What does God want? Well, today we're going to learn something from the ancient book of Jeremiah that can help us in that specific area. Today I want to talk to you from Jeremiah 23 about the supreme value of the Word of God. The supreme value of the Word of God. So would you join me there? Would you take a Bible? And uh, we're in the Old Testament today, so if, that means if you kind of open up near the middle... You'll hit Psalms, and then keep going to the right until you hit Proverbs, and then the big book of Isaiah, and then you'll hit Jeremiah. Today we're in Jeremiah 23, and I want to talk to you about how do you hear from God? How do you know what's the right thing to do? How do you handle the various viewpoints and sort them out, and you say, this is the one that I think is right, this is the one that I don't think is right? That's what we're going to find today, Jeremiah chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 16 down to verse 29 today. Let me pray for us. I know Pastor Dwayne prayed for me, but I love to pray for myself and for us as we open the Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, today we, we sit here. It's a bit of an oasis for, for us. It's calm. It's peaceful. It's joy-filled. It's praise-filled. But we live in a world that's not peaceful. We live in a contentious, fractious world. Society where people shout their viewpoints with ferocity. And Lord, sometimes we confess to you, it's hard to sort out the truth from the fiction. And it's hard to know which way we're supposed to go, which way is true north. I'm asking today that your word, which speaks in a timeless but timely way, would be used in our hearts by the Spirit's power so that we would hear from you and know the supreme value of your word. And I pray for help as I lead us through this and help for each of us as we listen. May we respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pick it up in verse 16, Jeremiah 23. Listen along as I read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a, whir a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel... Then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, and they would have turned them back from their evil way and from their evil deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies, who prophesy the deed of their, deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? 
Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. For what is straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That's a pretty hard-hitting passage, isn't it? The backstory for it is this. These, these words were written in a very dark and tense time in Israel's history. When, when Jeremiah wrote these words, Israel was falling apart at the seams. They were coming apart. They were, things were unraveling. The evil superpower of the day, Babylon, had already come into their land, subjugated the people. They captured the city of Jerusalem. They installed a puppet king. And the people were frightened about what was going to happen next. And they were confused. Like, what's God doing in all this? And in the turmoil of what was going on, a bunch of people rose up. They, they called themselves prophets. Like, I'm going to speak for God. So all these people rose up. And they were saying a bunch of messages to the people. But God says, you know what they're saying? It's not what I'm saying. In fact, if you look at verse 16, that's what he says, right? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So they're saying things that they think, but they're not saying things that I'm saying, God says. And then in verse 25, he says they're really big about dreaming up things. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. I have dreamed, I have dreamed. So there, these people are coming up going, hey, I got something to tell you. I had, I had this dream. I had this vision. I have this idea. And it's from God. And God is saying, it's not from me. And then we get to verses 28 and 29. This is where we're going to land today. And this is the message God wants the people to hear at this very, very difficult time. Look at verse 28, the first part. He says, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. So somebody's got their own idea. Okay, go ahead and speak it. But then look what comes next, verse 28. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. That's really kind of the punchline that God is saying. He's saying, there's a bunch of people dreaming up stuff. But let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. In fact, if you see the little phrase, let him who has my word speak my word, the word speak there in my translation, I have the ESV today, says uh, where it says, let him who has my word speak my word, the word speak, the Hebrew word for speak is the same Hebrew word for word. So you could translate this, let him who has my word, word my word. Do you get the main point of that? Like God's saying, it's my word. It's my word I want them to hear. You, I want people to get up and speak my word. Let them word my word. Speak my word. And that's why he says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, tell them what I say. You speak my word. You don't dream stuff up. You tell them what I say. And then he said to Jeremiah, write it down. When you get to chapter oh, 34 and so on, you read about how Jeremiah writes this all down. Because God wanted his word to be heard, not just then, but now. So he put it down in a book. So you and I, who live 2,500 years later, can pick it up and still hear what God had to say. That's why we call the Bible the word 
of God. It's living. It's still alive. It's written in a book, but it's still alive because it's the word of God. So God is saying, I want people to hear my word. And we pick up the book and we go, this is how we hear his word. Now, I know I'm among those, many of you, who've come to believe that. You've come to say, I do believe that this book is the word of God. But there may be some here today, and certainly we all have friends, people we know and love, who would look at us and go, you know, I know you believe that that's the word of God, but I'm not convinced. I think it's another holy book. There's lots of holy books out there. So why would this book qualify as the word of God? How do you know that this book is really God's book? That's a fair and a good question. And uh, the answer of it could go on for a while, and I could tell you some things that I find very compelling. I could talk to you about how the Bible has been proven historically reliable, like no ancient book has ever been, super historically reliable. I could talk to you about how it's been time-tested. It stood the test of time. Some books go out of date. The Bible never goes out of date. I could talk to you of how the Bible has been prophetically precise. In the Bible, you read prophetic words that actually came to pass hundreds of years later after than what they were said. Precise precision prophecy that actually turns out. What book does that? I could talk to you about how this book has been, it has been globally embraced. There are, it's not just one culture that likes this book. There are literally people from every tribe and culture, when they hear this book, they sense this is the book from God. It's still the world's bestseller. But our verses today, they make a case for Scripture in a little different way. They come at it a little different angle. In verses 28 and 29, what Jeremiah records is that God says, let me tell you why my book, why my words are supremely valuable. They impact you the way no book impacts you. This book, this book, this word of God will shape your life, will change your life in a way no other book, no other word can. And it gives us in verses 28 and 29 three ways that the Bible, the Word of God, is supremely valuable in impacting our lives. Three ways it's changed my life. Three ways it's probably changed many of your lives. Three ways I want to show you today why the Word of God is supremely valuable, because there's nothing else like it. So let me take you through verses 28 and 29, show you three ways that the Bible is supremely valuable, three reasons why it's so important. Here's the first. comes right out of verse 28. God's word is like grain, it will nourish you. That's the first thing he's going to say. Here's why it's so valuable. It's like grain, it's like wheat, it will nourish you. Do you see that in verse 28? Look at it again with me. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak or word my word faithfully. And then look what comes next. What has straw in common with wheat? Do you get the flow of thought there? God is saying this. Every other word out there, all the things that the prophets are saying, it's like they're straw. But my word is like wheat. It's like grain. Now, in an agrarian society, they live by growing crops. And they knew the difference between, you know, oat hay, weeds, straw, and they knew what grain was. Like, if you had to feed your animals... You don't feed them straw. There's no nutritional value. And God is saying, the, all the other people out there shouting their dreams, their ideas, it's like spiritual straw. 
It's non-caloric. It's, but my word, it's like grain. It's like wheat. It's high fiber. It's nutritious. And one reason the Word of God is supremely valued because it nourishes you like nothing else. My son, Michael, was a youth pastor up in Ottawa for a number of years. And uh, he, he worked with grades, you know, uh, I think mostly high school, but junior high in there as well. And so every Wednesday night when they gathered, he would teach them from God's Word. They did a lot of zany things too and had a great time. But he always sat down and said, now we're going to go in the Word of God. And he worked through Romans. He was working through Romans, so teaching them through Romans. And one day he was driving in his car and he had Christian radio on and there was an interview with a youth specialist, a guy that's a youth pastor specialist. And this guy was saying, he says, listen, listen, youth pastors out there, let's be realistic. The high school kids that you teach, the junior high kids that you teach, they're not going to remember your lessons. They're just not. You're going to teach it, and it's going to go in one ear and out the other. So instead of spending so much time trying to get ready for your teaching, you know, teaching the Bible, it's all good. But instead of doing that, you'll get more leverage if you spend your time going to their soccer games. They'll remember you took them out to Starbucks. They're not going to remember what you say. So my son Michael comes to me, and he goes, Dad, I'm spending these time getting ready to teach them through the book of Romans. Am I wasting my time? The guy on the radio seems to say they're going to forget what I said, but they'll remember that I took them to Starbucks. I do that, but I always thought it was important that I'm teaching them the Bible. So I said to Michael, my son, I said, Michael, let me ask you a question. How many of your mother's meals that she made you over the years, how many of her, of her meals do you remember now? You know, you're 19, 20, 21 years old. How many do you remember? And he goes, well, let's see here. Well, I remember my birthday meals because we always got to pick the menu on our birthdays. So he remembers those. Because I remember Christmas dinners. Those were always awesome. Remember Thanksgiving. And beyond that, I don't remember a lot of the other meals. I said, that's true. You don't. But if your mother had not prepared nutritious meals for you day in and day out, you would have never grown up to be a healthy young man. What you're doing when you feed people the Word of God is you're giving them nutrition. And it's true. They may not remember every specific thing that you said, but you're building into their life the kinds of things that will allow them to grow up spiritually healthy. So yes, take the kids out to Starbucks. Yes, show up at their soccer games. But don't pull back from feeding them the Word of God. It's like grain. It will nourish them. Have you found that? Have you found that the Bible nourishes you? Man, I find this all the time. On Friday, a couple days ago, I woke up and I do what I do every day when I wake up. I, re I start in the Word of God. I read the next section that I've left off from the previous day. And on Friday, I woke up and I was a little weary. I'd had a number of things, leadership challenges that I had to deal with, conversations that had been, you know, you, the kind you expend a lot of emotional energy on. And I woke up. And I was kind of worn down, and I said, okay, next chapter I'm in. And I was on, in the Psalms, and I came to my next one, which was Psalm 124. And it says, if it had not been the Lord that was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their angle came anger kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. 
Do you see what he's saying? Like if the Lord wasn't protecting us, we'd just get washed away. We'd get blown away by life. And I read those verses. I've read them before. But on Friday morning as I read them, I could just feel the strength coming back into my soul. Like, yes, God is our defender. God is our protector. God is the one when there are things washing over our life that would swamp us and sweep us away. God is that. And I needed to hear that again. And it was the word of God nourishing my soul, strengthening my soul. I'm guessing you have days like I did last Friday. I'm guessing you wake up at times and thinking, I don't know, it feels like a tsunami of things coming my way. How do you have strength to face that? Well, let me tell you, you have in your hands the word of God that is like grain. It will nourish you. It will strengthen you. See, there's nothing else like the Word of God like that. There's nothing else. God's Word is like grain. It will nourish you. That's the first thing. But Jeremiah records what God says, and God doesn't stop there. He's not done. He's going to say two more things, and each one gets a little more intense. He's already said God's Word is like grain. It will nourish you. If you go back to our passage and look at verse 29, you find the second one. God's Word is like fire. It will refine you. God's word is like fire. It will refine you. It's like a refiner's fire. It burns away the impurities. God's word is like fire. It will refine you. Look at verse 29. Right after the Lord says, what has my word in common with straw? It's not straw, it's wheat. Then verse 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Like fire, like a refiner's fire. Jeremiah had already talked about refiner's fire back in chapter 6. You know in that day how, how they worked with metals. Say you had some silver, and it's precious metal. But it has some impurities in it, some dross, some lead. So what they would do is they'd heat it up, right? They'd put it in a fire, and the fire would burn away the dross, the impurities, but it would leave the precious silver. God is saying, my word is like that. It will refine you. It will burn away the impurities in your life, and it will leave what's precious. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you, you have impurities in your life, and I do too. And our culture is filled with them. And the Word of God comes as a refiner's fire to burn away what's false and to leave what's true and good. A couple of years ago, I saw this happen in real time. Linda and I were in the country of Tanzania there in Africa, and we had been invited to speak to a group of ministry leaders, uh, some Maasai, uh, folks from Maasai tribes and a number of other tribes in Tanzania, and we had been asked to do a three-hour seminar on marriage. So as we thought about what we would say in three hours through a translator, we decided that what we didn't want to do was just to import a bunch of Western ideas about marriage and say, you should do it like we do it. So what we thought, well, the best thing we could do is just take them through passages in the Bible that talk about marriage, because that's not just for those of us in the West, that's for all people. So we started in Genesis 2, and we talked to them about Genesis 2. You remember the story there, Genesis 2, God creates the man and the woman, and then in chapter 2, verse 24, it says... For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And we were going over that, that passage with them. And as we did, where it talks about 
leave father and mother, cleave to wife, be, and then one, be one flesh. One of the young men stood up. His name was Sammy. And he was a sharp, young Tanzanian leader. Really a sharp guy. He stands up and he says, this word of God really helped me. And he says, in my tribe, this is what he begins to tell everyone. In my tribe, it is our tradition that when a woman marries a man, she marries into his tribe and she becomes the servant of the man's siblings. And, it, you know, he says this, ladies, how do you like that option, right? You marry somebody and you become the servant of your husband's siblings. So he says this out loud and everyone around the, the circle just nods. It's like, yep, that's how it goes. Linda and I are a little bit like, whoa, that's a little different. Had heard that one before. And then he said, so the first time I brought my wife back to my tribe, we woke up the next morning, came out of our, uh, where we were staying, and there were two piles of laundry that my sisters, this guy Sammy said, my sisters had brought their laundry, put it on our doorstep so that my wife could do their laundry. Because remember, if you marry into the tribe, you become a servant of the husband's siblings. And when, it, when he says this, all the people around the circle are just nodding like, okay, that's what you do. And then Sammy says this, he goes, so I picked up the laundry and I went to my sisters and I said, if you do this again, I will burn your clothes. <laughs> and when he says that, everyone around the circle is like, whoa, what did you just say? And then he said this, the Bible says, a man shall leave his father and mother Cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. He said, she is my wife. She is not your servant. We would be happy to help with your laundry. But you need to come ask me. You don't just assume. And when he said that, the heads around the circle started to go, you know, he's right. See what was happening? The Word of God was refining their culture, the way things were done. Now, let me ask you, do you think it needs to do that for people where we live, or do you think that's just good for the folks in Tanzania? Do you think we possibly could have some areas where maybe we're going down the wrong trail, but it seems natural to us? Yes. Yes, we could. We need the refining power of the Word of God. You need the refining power of the Word of God. You see, one reason you read this book is because it is countercultural. It will speak to you and challenge the cultural assumptions, the plausibility structures of the day. You need to read this word because it will challenge what your culture says about things like money. Today, Pastor Duane told us about what the Bible says about what we do with money. That's not what the culture says. The culture says what you have is yours. Nobody can tell you what to do with it. But the Word of God comes and says, no, 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 no. Here's what it is. You need to hear that. The Bible challenges your culture's view on so many things, on how you handle your family, how you, how you honor your mom and dad. The Bible has things to say about that that often go against what culture says. The Bible has things to say on how you raise your kids. The society may tell you some things, but the Bible says, no, here's some time-tested wisdom. This is what you need, to, and it will challenge areas of your culture. The Bible will challenge what your culture tells you about your identity, about your sexuality. The Bible will come and go cross-grain with those things, and you and I need it, just like the folks in Tanzania needed to hear it. You need to hear it. I need to hear it. That's why you need to be in it.
Because here's what will happen. You are being discipled every day of your life by your culture. Every day of your life. You're getting barraged with messages. And if those are the only messages you take in, eventually it will tend to make you go with what you hear and what you see around you. But, but if you open up this book and you let God speak to you, you will find that it challenges you and refines you and changes you. There's no other book like that. You need that. You need it to feed you. It's high fiber. You need it to refine you. It's heat generating. It will change you. But we're not done yet. There's one more thing God said His Word is like, and this one is, this one's the most jarring of all. You see, we've already seen God's Word is like grain. It will nourish you, right? God's Word is like fire. It will refine you. If you go back to verse 29, you see this. God's Word is like a hammer. God's Word is like a hammer. It will shatter you. That's what it says. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God is saying His word at times comes to us like a hammer that shatters us. You say, why would He do that? It's because sometimes our hearts get rock hard, don't they? Sometimes our hearts get hard. We need more than just a little refining. We actually need to be broken. We need to be shattered. And sometimes the Word of God comes like the hammer and it shattered us. It did in Jeremiah's day. In fact, there's a case study of a hard-hearted guy that got shattered by the Word of God. If you just keep your place here and turn to chapter 28, let me just show you a really quick case study. It's really vivid. God has Jeremiah take a yoke, a, a yoke, as you know, a piece of wood that they yoked animals together. God had, you read in chapter 27, God has him take this yoke, go into the temple and put the yoke on his own shoulders and say, this is what the Lord says, come under the yoke of Babylon. God was putting his people, he was disciplining them, and they were going to be under the thumb of a foreign power. So Jeremiah is in the temple with this yoke on his shoulders, and he's saying, God tells us we are to submit to the powers of Babylon. It's not that they're good guys, but this is God's discipline on us. We submit. But there's another guy named Hananiah who doesn't like that. So you pick it up in chapter 28, verse 1. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me, to Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, "This, you get it? There's all these people around. They're in the temple. Hananiah steps up. Jeremiah standing there with his yoke on his shoulders. Hananiah says this, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is Hananiah speaking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried into Babylon. So Hananiah comes up and goes, God has a good news for us. He's breaking the yoke. Within two years, it's all good. And then in verse 10, slide down to verse 10, then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. Okay, do you get that? This is high drama. Jeremiah's got this yoke on his shoulders and he's saying, God says, come under the yoke of Babylon. Hananiah comes in and goes, no, that's not what God says. God says he's broken that yoke. 
Two years, we're all back home. It's all good. He goes over to Jeremiah, takes the yoke off, and snaps it. Whoa. So this guy is directly contradicting Jeremiah and the word of the Lord. Look what Jeremiah says to him. Slide down to verse 15. Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. And you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Whoa. Bet you some people sat up a little straighter after that happened, right? But do you see what happened? Sometimes hearts get so hard that the Word of God comes and it's like a hammer and it shatters. You know, in a small ways, my friends, I would tell you I've, I've known the hammering of the Word of God in my heart. There have been times when my heart has gotten hard. And the Word of God has come with hammer-like force and shattered some of the hardness. That happens to you too. Our hearts get hard at times. Maybe our hearts get hardened because we get hurt. And we know we're supposed to forgive, but we, we close off our hearts and we say, you know what that person did to me is unforgivable. And our hearts get hardened over and we won't forgive until the word of the God, God comes in one time and it shatters that unforgiving heart. Maybe it's that our hearts get rebellious like Hananiah's. We know what God wants us to do, but like Jonah, we're saying, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. And our hearts get hard until the word of God comes, either spoken in a message or read in the scriptures, and it shatters us. But when God shatters my heart and when he shatters yours, he doesn't do it to break us and leave us broken. He does it to break us so that he can build us, rebuild us. So why is the word of God so valuable? Because it does what nothing else can do. It's like grain that nourishes you. It's like fire that refines you. It's like a hammer that will shatter you. And you need all of those things. You need all of those at different moments in your life. And that's why I'm saying to you, Amidst all the voices that you hear, when you get all the opinions shouted your way, when you dream up things or others do, you know what you and I need to do? We need to stay in this book. We need to dig in. We need to stay dialed in because here's where we hear from God. Here's where we cut through the clutter. Here's where we find true north. Here's where we find needed strength. So I don't know if you're investing much time in this book, but boy, you need it. You need the food that it has. You need the fire that it has. You need the hammer that it has. There is nothing like the Word of God. There is, there is nothing that has the supreme value of it. But you know the very best thing the Word of God does for you? Both in nourishing, firing, and hammering. You know what the best thing it does? Oh, it helps you with a myriad of things that you've got to figure out in life. I get that. But the best thing it does for you, it tells you how to get close to God. Like, yes, it helps you with issues like gender identity, and it helps you figure out how to relate to the government. It helps you know how to treat your parents. It does all of those things. 
But the thing it does best, and it does first and foremost, is it tells you how you, a flawed human being, can get close to the God who made you and who loves you. It tells you how to do that. Jeremiah even tells you how to do that. A few chapters later, we come to what is probably the high watermark in the book of Jeremiah. Some people would say it's the high watermark in the whole Old Testament. Jeremiah is a pretty dark book, lots of judgment, but you get to chapter 31 And oh, it shines because Jeremiah says, here's how you can be close to God. Let me just read for you. I'll put it on the screen. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah promises that one day God would bring in a new covenant. And 600 years later, he kept the promise. 600 years later, Jesus came, the one who we call the Word of God, the living Word of God. He spoke the words of God. And do you remember what Jesus said the night before he was crucified? He took the bread... And he gave it to them, and he said, this is my what? This is my body, which is given for you. But then he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. He was coming to fulfill what Jeremiah had said. And through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus opened up this new covenant. And now people like you and me can come close to God. And you'll never know how to do that without the Bible. The Bible says all you need to do to be close to God is to come to him with empty hands and an open heart, putting your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross and who he is for you. And and when you do that, the Bible says God gives you the gift of eternal life and eternal friendship. If you've never done that, you could do that today. You could put your faith in Christ because I know that's true because the Bible says it. The Bible tells you, and there is no book like the Bible. Supremely value. It nourishes you like grain. It refines you like fire. It shatters you like a hammer. But through it all, it draws you close to God through Jesus who who brought in the new covenant. There's no book like that. Spend your life, brothers and sisters, getting to know this book. At Heritage, we can help you with that. We can help you get digger in, but you can dig in right now. This church will help you. But this book is the key to live in a life that pleases God and cuts through the clutter of your culture. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to be men and women who listen to your word above all other words. There's so many voices. We have voices in our heads, we have voices in our streets. We have voices on the media. We have voices all around. But Lord, we only have one way to hear your voice, by your spirit, through your word. I pray, Lord, that we here at James North would be men and women of the word so that they can shine for you in this world and speak your life-giving word to others. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.